Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's great to be back on the air again, and what do you know, we are now starting a new book topic discussion. I'm sure many of you are wondering, how do you do it, Kirk? Uh, How do you prepare for all of this? Well, the key is to find the time to do it. The key is to do research. The key is to um, look into uh, everything there is to know about what it is you want to podcast before going live on the air with it. In other words, yes, you may know information about uh, a particular matter, but it's all about how you go about presenting it to your audience. Well, in order to be successful, I've had to go behind the scenes and do all that stuff. Yes, it's one thing to know facts. Yes, it's one thing to tell information, but it's all about being able to tell the right story. Not just the right story, but segments of a book that make the story itself all the more worth um, telling. Because if you don't have all that right um, mixture of ingredients in terms of doing the research, in terms of um, in terms of just reading through what is um, worth sharing, then how are you going to get the right story? How are you going to be able to keep uh, an audience coming back, not just short-term, but long-term? So most of you all are probably wondering, where do we go from here, given that we just finished up a great uh, podcast series, uh, being the fire of his genius, Robert Fulton and the American Dream? Well, I do have uh, news to report, and that, Our next uh, book topic discussion will involve um, the American Revolution. Now, I know most of you already um, are saying to yourselves, what else is there out there about the American Revolution that we don't already know? Well, in our next uh, book topic discussion, I will uh, be sharing with you all a story that, um, that hasn't really been told. However, the author who wrote this book has brought new meaning to the um, to the movement itself. What do I mean by movement? Well, I, I'm not talking uprising. I'm talking about a movement that involved um, multiple retreats. But a mo- retreats, yeah, to us seem like a bad thing. But retreats are of uh, strategical importance. So, in my uh, prologue. There will be a discussion about um, about the necessity behind retreats and how retreating for um, one side of this uh, of the cause uh, benefited that party, whereas the other side was in a state of um, constant um, cat and mouse. In other words, when one side got ahead, the other side was was one to two steps behind. So, we're going to do something a little bit different. I know in times past when I have uh, discussed um, my prologues, or I should say my introductions, I've usually saved the title for what we're doing book topic-wise at the very end. I've decided this time around it might be better to do it differently by, um, by sharing it right away first. This way, for those of you whom have been with me for quite some time, we'll have a better understanding of where we're going forward with this particular um, 
podcast book topic uh, series discussion. I don't know if any of you all have read this book. I, I bought it um, for Christmas last year, and it was a, and it was a very um, excellent read. It's written by a, a fellow named uh, Andrew Waters, and the title is the following. To the End of the World. All right, I will tell you that much of the title. There is another part of the title, but I would rather tell that part towards the very end. So we'll have it both ways. We get part of the title at the beginning and part of the title of this next book topic discussion towards the very end. All right, let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and be prepared uh, for a uh, prologue that will provide us with uh, relevant uh, information on where we're going. Rivers have been around since the time mankind first evolved onto center stage. More often than not, when people think of rivers, they tend to associate them with recreational purposes, ranging from fishing, kayaking, canoeing, whitewater rafting, tubing. Hey, they all sound like fun um, activities along a river. Although rivers can benefit mankind from a recreational standpoint, they have proven to be an invaluable asset when it comes to communities, towns, cities, all requiring access to clean water for drinking, cooking, bathing, irrigation practices. History itself has proven just how effective rivers have served mankind from early ancient civilization times, including times of peace and war. Now, I know all of a sudden some of you are thinking, okay, here we are uh, going to be talking about a particular um, time frame of the um, American Revolution or the American Revolutionary War, but we're talking now about rivers. What do rivers have to do with the American Revolutionary War itself? Well, I'm glad you asked because uh, rivers uh, are going to be mentioned uh, a little bit more in this uh, prologue. Our primary focus for this next podcast series is on the American Revolutionary War from its Southern Campaign. Did you hear that, folks? Southern Campaign. Involving the use of rivers. Saying or perhaps mentioning rivers in general can be vague, if not properly defined or rather um, properly um, addressed. We must be reminded that during America's seven-year war with England from 1775 to 1781, that rivers did in fact play an important part in keeping the flames of independence alive. Early on in America's uh, conflict with um, the mother country, being England, rivers became, uh, became of great essential importance, most notably um, at New York and at uh, Trenton, New Jersey, uh, within the year of 1776. I should point out that New York, yes, it was a uh, disastrous debacle for General Washington and his officers and for the troops themselves. What did save them, though, was um, the elements of Mother Nature. The weather ended up playing um, to the Americans' uh, advantage, whereas it delayed the British 
in advancing across the river. Apparently, there was enough intelligence from within, um, from within the ranks of Washington's army to where they felt that it was time to make a move and leave, knowing that things were going so disastrous that they uh, decided to um, evacuate and seek uh, higher ground on another part of uh, New York from opposite from one of the um, waterways uh, to where they would be across um, across the river, but immune from um, from a British surprise attack. Well, that did um, pay off, and while it was of uh, short gain success, Washington and his forces were able to live to live on for another day and survive. Even though uh, New York, the New York campaign uh, was um, a major debacle, but still, the uh, flames of independence had not been completely extinguished. And then, of course, with Trenton, December 1776, or what led up to uh, Christmas night of 1776, desertion, morale, everything had pretty much reached an all-time low. General Washington knew that the Continental Army was on the brink of collapse. And so, therefore, he had to uh, change gears. And by changing gears, he had to do something that was unconventional. Thanks to the help of an informant whom um, spotted, whom knew about a uh, Hessian uh, a Hessian uh, post in Trenton, he gave Washington what he needed. He gave Washington, the informant gave Washington a spot or a place where he and his forces could um, launch a surprise attack. An attack that would not only restore, that an attack that would, yes, catch the enemy by surprise, but an attack that, if succeeded, would restore morale, would um, reduce or pretty much eliminate desertions, and would uh, reinvigorate the Continental Army to where uh, men um, whom were undecided about joining would now um, come along, and for those whose enlistments were about to expire, would continue to stay on and fight for another day. Well, in the long run, the surprise attack succeeded. The mission was victory or death. And yes, crossing the Delaware River, Christmas night, frigid weather, ice along the river, they prevailed. But there again, it was victory or death. And it was non, but it was also non-conventional, meaning that uh, for the Europeans, like the British, their philosophy was to uh, rest during the winter and resume fighting in the spring. General Washington had no luxury. This was a matter of life and death, a matter of victory or death, and without going forward and attacking the Hessian post at Trenton, the Continental Army would not only falter and collapse, but the flames of independence would go extinct, would become extinguished as well. So the presence of waterways, or I should say rivers, wasn't anything for which the Continental Army didn't take lightly. But come 1780, America was in another was in another crisis mode, as the southern campaign against England had hit rock bottom. 
Leadership had changed multiple times in the Southern Continental Army's upper ranks prior to 1780 ending. But fate would prove that not all hope got lost when General George Washington named an officer in Nathaniel Green to become the new commanding general for the Revolutionary War's Southern Campaign. I'm wondering if this is if this might uh, have any um, have any relation to a famous uh, saying, "Right person, right time." I'm beginning to wonder if perhaps Nathaniel Green is is now going to become the right person, or I should say, the right officer, at the right time to um, reinvigorate to help reinvigorate uh, what is already being seen as a doomed uh, a doomed scenario for the uh, Continental Army in the South. We should keep in mind that George Washington does not come south to fight. He's in New York, but he is sending one of his most ablest men, whom he knows can change things. I have a good hunch that this is going to come true. However, we will have to learn more about Nathaniel Green, not only uh, further on in this uh, prologue, but uh, throughout the rest of this uh, book topic uh, discussion. So, anyways, new leadership can always be welcomed, but General Green's background prior to coming south served him well. How so? I can tell you right now. He had been a quartermaster general. I know that's a very unique uh, title. I should point out that a quartermaster general was also another term for... Um, uh, another term for uh, chief corporate officer, or rather the Continental Army's chief cor chief corporate officer, one whom went about overseeing all troop movement, the supply of various provisions, the state of encampments or, or camps alone, to movements behind transporting all things essential and ensuring that the Continental Army was functioning as thoroughly as possible. Is it fair to say that Nathaniel Green not only was just an officer in the war itself, he might as well have been the have been the uh, Continental Army's uh, logistics manager? You know, in other words, it's so easy to take um, supplies for granted. We have to remember in in colonial times, but also during this war, how are goods being um, how are goods being transported, folks? usually by wagons, and not just wagons alone, ox, teams of ox or teams of horses are transporting um, various essential provisions that the Continental Army will need to have uh, both uh, short and long term. So we have to remember we don't have anything um, that bears any resemblance to um, Amazon trucks or, or cars in general uh, that can... Um, transport um, essentials uh, from point A to point B in, uh, in convenient times. And of course, we also have to wonder too, okay, what happens when the weather doesn't cooperate? Doesn't that have a, um, a huge part? And I'm sure that that will be discussed um, often in, the book in this book topic uh, discussion, but isn't it fair to say that weather alone can delay 
movement of uh, goods and essential provisions that would uh, help keep an army's uh, well-being afloat? Absolutely. So for Nathaniel Green, these are challenges that um, cannot be ignored. However, Nathaniel Green is one of those uh, individuals whom looks forward to these kinds of challenges because it's not so much who kills how many um, how many of the opposition's um, numbers on a battlefield. It's all about how um, our side keeps going forward, even when the going gets tough, even if we've um, endured a few uh, setbacks. How do we keep going forward so that um, we will live to fight for another day? And how do we keep going forward to where our numbers won't be completely diminished, not just by means of supplies, but overall uh, troop numbers as well? So Nathaniel Green knew from the start just how vital rivers uh, served for for transportation purposes, but he also realized what potential they possessed in times of actual warfare fighting that can make the difference between life and death and keeping greater cause alive regarding independence. Well, there you have it. I mean, well, there you have it right there for Nathaniel Green from that um, pers- from that um, aspect. You know, yes, it's one thing to know just how essential rivers are for trans for transportation purposes, and say getting um, p- and getting units of um, and getting um, soldiers or um, militia units from point A to point B via a ferry, but but if you are trying to make a retreat, where can you go when you have greater numbers? You can find a, uh, access to a waterway, or you can seek shelter somewhere near a waterway to uh, keep yourself from being uh, attacked by the enemy. Prior to Nathaniel Green's um, departure, that is, before he left uh, to go south to, um, to the southern campaign, Nathaniel Green himself was already um, in the uh, process of uh, having shared um, ideas or uh, suggestions behind waterway transportation with men from as high up as General George Washington to Governor Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. This did give him an advantage because he, he saw things that maybe others had not been paying very careful uh, attention to uh, detail-wise. But for the Revolutionary War to survive down south, Nathaniel Green knew that how battlefield combat itself, given how it was currently being conducted, would have to change. It would have to to change drastically, not just short-term, but more so long-term, against an enemy whom currently had nothing standing in its way, being the British. If Rivers could help get military supplies from point A to point B, then the idea or concept alone behind the use of light infantry hadn't been anything foreign given early on at the war's outset. General Washington turned to irregular fighting measures which saved his army from total annihilation. Irregular fighting, folks, will be something that's going to get mentioned a little bit more, not only in this uh, introduction, but it's going to get mentioned a great deal in this uh, book topic discussion. 
You've probably heard me mention about irregular warfare from other uh, podcast uh, book topics. But for those of you who are new uh, to Anchor, not just new to Anchor, but new to my uh, podcast uh, book topic discussions, irregular warfare, uh, for starters, is uh, non It's the opposite of uh, traditional conventional warfare. And when I think of uh, traditional warfare, I think of European uh, warfare fighting, where units of soldiers are lined up next to one another and fire volleys across the open field, knocking the enemy's um, men down. While that's great with the, with the objective of um, trying to see how much decimation that can lead to, if everybody's out in the open field fighting, who's to say that, that the majority of your men are going to be standing when it's all said and done? Irregular fighting, on the other hand, doesn't require all of your forces to fight at once. And what I mean by light infantry, that is um, soldiers whom are able to move very quickly, but, are, but can move quickly without having to carry a lot on their back. And light infantry also can, can pertain to those whom are uh, riding by horse, or what I refer to as the dragoon, dragoons, uh, cavalry. In other words, if you are a light infantry soldier and you are riding by horse, there are two things you can do. Uh, number one, you can still fire at the opposition using a pistol. You can also use a sword to uh, fight uh, someone on the opposition side who's not on horse. But number two, you can get off your horse and be ready to get into a loading position where you can fire at the enemy. Light infantry is about moving quickly and doing so without having to rely on so much, um, so many provisions just to be able to get from point A to point B and get everything set up to where you're, uh, to where the objective is to be out on the battlefield for a long period of time. So in other words, light infantry, less uh, equipment, but also um, engaging in irregular style of fighting where where the entire um, army unit doesn't have to be there. You can send detachments of 10 to 15 men whom can be scattered throughout the woods. And as the enemy is making its way through the terrain, you have a couple of soldiers come from, come from underneath a tree or from underneath uh, bushes, cock and load, with the objective of aiming small, missing small. And what I mean by aim small, miss small, is that you hit part of an object. Even if you don't get it completely, you're hitting part of an object, like a, like a soldier's uh, belt buckle or a, a button on their coat, only to, um, only to draw them into confusion to where other soldiers on your side can come out and surprise them and knock them down. So irregular style fighting, folks, is non-conventional. It's a quick way of uh, knocking the enemy down, taking them by surprise, where maybe the greatest number of casualties aren't um, inflicted, but it's enough of a uh, psychological shock and scare to where they will be on the run, and um, in the, long, in the greater the likelihood that it will take them longer to uh, regroup.
So is it fair to say that uh, by for men like General Washington, whom turned to irregular fighting measures, was a relevant thing to do? Absolutely. Because if you don't turn to uh, different methods of fighting, then the greater the likelihood that the cause for, um, for independence in, in terms of beating the British on the battlefield, the greater the likelihood of that um, actual um, goal coming true becomes um, less likely. So General Nathaniel Green saw irregular fighting as an essential means for survival, meaning that the objective wasn't about winning one battle, but wearing down an opponent with lightning force, where over time the opposition would fold. You know, if I was alive back in the time of the American Revolutionary War, I would be all for this irregular fighting. It's one thing to be out on an open battlefield with uh, traditional European uh, linear warfare, but you're not guaranteed that you'll come out of the battle alive. Yes, you might be safer on a battlefield than, say, uh, being a prisoner of war, but to me, I think I'd be safer fighting irregular-style warfare. How so? Well... The whole army unit doesn't come out as one. Detachments come out. But, but the goal is to um, engage in an irregular style of uh, fighting to where the enemy is caught off by guards, caught off by guard, to where you can find a way to uh, wear them down and, um, and have a, a plan in place to where after you've fired on them a couple of times and, they're, and they've been knocked down, you find a way to retreat but by doing so in a formal manner. So there again, if I was alive in, during this time, I'd be all for fighting irregular versus conventional. One must go to 1778 when the Southern Campaign began, uh, following the aftermath of Monmouth Courthouse, New Jersey, which uh, ended in a draw in late June of 1778. Well, Britain had failed to strike a decisive blow into the Continental Army that could have ended all hostilities, and therefore one last opportunity presented itself, available, being America's southern colonies. Britain truly was convinced, folks, that there were, that there were enough uh, loyalists in the South that would lead uprisings, not only in the Carolinas and Georgia, but in the largest of the 13 colonies, being Virginia, that there were enough loyalists in those uh, colonies to where um, there would be enough support and that, an e that easy victories would follow and everything would um, be a slam dunk and this war itself would come to a, a very, very um, much needed end. Well, in late 1780, Nathaniel Green's destination south was to South Carolina, where he would get acquainted with Patriot officers from Daniel Morgan, Henry Lee, Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, Andrew Pickens, all of whom knew what it meant to fight unconventional when the going got tough. And, th and those men whom I just mentioned, they will be uh, discussed uh, pretty frequently in this uh, book topic discussion. Nathaniel Green's uh, leadership in the Southern Campaign 
would hinge upon gaining unlimited knowledge behind multiple river systems going across Virginia, North and South Carolina. Ah, here we are, folks, back again with rivers. I'm sure some of you probably were wondering how come we were having all that river talk there earlier. Four river systems will require our attention in this podcast book topic, being the Broad, the Catawba, the Yadkin, and the Dan, all of which would come into play during General Greene's time as Southern Continental Army Commander. Prior to Nathaniel Greene's arrival into South Carolina, British General Lord Charles Cornwallis, boy, that's a name that uh, we've been, that many of us have learned about and have known, rather, about for quite some time, given that uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, um, whenever we think of him, we often tend to think of him at uh, Yorktown, Virginia, where um, the infamous surrender of Yorktown occurred on October the 19th of 1781. General Cornwallis being remembered as the man whom lost it all. Well, when General, uh, prior to Nathaniel Greene's arrival into South Carolina, British General Lord Charles Cornwallis was at the top of his game. How so? Well, the Brit- British troops have achieved huge victories at Charleston, and most notably that siege of Charleston that went from um, late March into uh, mid-May uh, of 1780. And then August of 1780 at Camden, including uh, Waxhaws, uh, which was um, just before uh, Camden. But all of these victories in 1780 alone put Cornwallis in a position to where (laughs) nothing could stop him. The British have everything they need. I mean, things are so bad in South Carolina for the uh, Continental for the uh, Continental Army, not just, rather, for the Continental Army, but things were so bad that South Carolina's governor, John Rutledge, was forced to flee he, for his own personal safety. Once the British occupied Charleston, he, um, he got out uh, right in time before the siege of Charleston ended. He had to go as far north as into North Carolina, around the North Carolina-South Carolina line. So if we have a governor that's been forced to flee because of his safety... That tells us right there that uh, that that government itself is going to have a hard time functioning, let alone functioning in general. Now that the enemy has uh, taken control, not only of Georgia but now South Carolina. So Cornwallis knew the overall state of Continental Army was poor. But yet he was just like every other high-ranking officer, or rather I should say he was just like every other high-ranking British officer, whom preferred order and tradition over all things unconventional. Is that something that down the road could uh, present a, um, a red flag? Perhaps. One thing I do know that the British Army um, is very um, select about is communication. Communication within the British Army was small. How so? Well, by, by being small, it meant that only the uppermost rank of men in the British Army are going to be uh, the ones whom will get 
first writes on um, getting the, the latest intelligence findings, will get the latest uh, news briefings about what the opposition could be up to or as to uh, whom, is, whom has defected onto their side, uh, whom has uh, defected to the opposition in terms of uh, people in the community. We must keep in mind that South Carolina uh, is one of those colonies where, where hostilities are so bad amongst the peoples that uh, the British are going to fail to realize that this is not going to be about so much about who's going to come to their side. It's really more about the people being against one another and whether or not those whom have loyalist views will join the British. And if they do join the British, will the British troops respect them? In other words, will they respect what they have to offer? Will they respect them for what they can um, provide uh, long term? So for the British, you know, the officers of the higher of the higher uh, tier ranks, communication um, is confined within just an elite inner circle. So in other words, for this group of uh, men, it's all about uh, who gets first dibs on intelligence, and they decide for themselves whom to share it with and when. If you were on the Continental Army side. It's a little different. Continental forces welcome findings from all corners. So in other words, on the Continental side, intelligence findings can go all the way from the bottom and can be relayed to the top. So in other words, we welcome your, um, your findings. We welcome what you have to say, even if you are not within the inner circle. Try going over to the British side. If you're John Smith and you want to share with, with uh, British uh, generals uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis or uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton, what you have found in terms of um, in terms of intelligence on the American side that could actually benefit the British, the bigger question is: Are they going to welcome it? And if they do, it's going to be up to them as to the, as to whether or not they decide whom they want to and don't want to share it with. On the American side, it's welcomed. On the British side, it's welcomed only if it's going to impact uh, the inner circle for the better. Given General Cornwallis had hailed from England's upper-class society, this also meant adhering to traditional European fighting. Ah, traditional European fighting, <laughs> good old linear warfare, a.k.a. open battlefield combat fighting. Well, General Cornwallis sought to strike the Continental Army with conventional tactics. But if he had flaws, which proved true, what do you think those flaws might have been, folks? Flaws centering upon where, or rather flaws centering upon what particular element? Cornwallis's inabilities to fight unconventionally. It's one thing to have momentum, but a leader, or rather I should say commanders, their minds will often say more about how they operate when times get tough, which we will learn a great deal about in this uh, book topic discussion. One, com one commander's mind 
will be cha will be changing regularly to ensure that remaining forces and new recruits stay loyal to the cause before them whereas another commander will get faced with surprises from unlimited corners making his primary objective all the more difficult to achieve fighting non-conventionally takes skills great leadership and effective planning behind how forces or units of soldiers retreat of course folks remember when um, when an army is in retreat what does that mean they are falling back they, they could be falling back to higher ground they are falling back because they know that they can't hold their lines any further because if they try to hold their lines with an enemy coming at them with bayonets which was more often than not the case at early times uh, during the American Revolutionary War when British um, soldiers had their 18-inch bayonets pointing at soldiers. Yeah, more often than not, uh, the lines would break. And if I was, if I was out there and I saw uh, British soldiers coming uh, 50, nearly 50 yards from where I was at with bayonets, yeah, I probably would run too. Bayonets are not something to be playing to be playing around with. 18-inch bayonets. I've seen those many of times at Williamsburg. I've seen uh, demonstrators attach them onto um, muskets and rifles. They are the real thing. And the thought of being um, attacked with a bayonet—that's very scary onto itself. So yes, fighting non-conventionally takes skills great leadership and effective planning behind how for forces or units of soldiers retreat, which can and does often include uh, not only seeking uh, high ground or um, abandoning your uh, post to where, um, to where you can still fight, but how about um, accessing um, rivers that will provide paths of safety, enabling survival to where... Um, an army can fight on for another day. Non-traditional warfare tactics enable greater opportunities for an army to survive long-term where they get broken up into smaller units and engage the hunted, or I should say the opposition, force with surprise attacks that over time wear down an aggressor whose losses can't be replaced. Aggressor, in this case, folks, is England. And by engaging in irregular-style fighting, number one, the British aren't accustomed to this style of fighting, and two, given that they are the aggressor, the, the aggressee <laughs> being, the, um, being the Continentals or the militia, can, um, surprise, can surprise them, and attack them out of nowhere to where once they um, to where once the British start uh, losing men, yes, they can uh, retreat, but they won't. But they will leave out of the woods with fewer men than what they had when when originally arriving in, and the loss of those men there again can't be replaced. So it's one thing to have numbers, but over time, numbers and size will come and go. Fighting in the South, most notably the Carolinas, would prove to be 
would prove to become incredibly tense. Even before Nathaniel Green's arrival in late 1780, but once Green showed up in, the, in South Carolina, the ashes of a nearly annihilated Continental Army would get the boost it needed from a general whom sought out irregular fighting versus traditional, a.k.a. European linear fighting. To beat Cornwallis and the British meant engaging in games of chess. Now, I'm not talking about Nathaniel Green and um, General Lord Charles Cornwallis sitting down together um, across from one another playing an actual board game of chess. But, to, but for General Nathaniel Green and his officers to beat Cornwallis and the British, it was going to mean engaging in the psychological game of chess where they knew that where they knew that it was important to be ahead, not just being ahead one step, but constantly thinking about what to do um, in, about what to do going forward, not just in the present day, but how are we going to uh, operate differently a week from now. And so this psychological game of chess required General Green and his officers to be ahead psychologically, meaning that consistent thinking and not uh, putting everything in one basket. In other words, you may have strategies but don't put them all in just one basket. Because if you do, who's to say that you might have a continental army that can still function somewhere down the road? In other words, your continental army and your militia, your light infantry, whatever you have left, you've got to make the most out of them. And that means using them uh, in non-traditional uh, styles of fighting, Use them in whatever ways there is possible irregularly so that by doing so you are keeping the enemy from advancing northward into North Carolina and Virginia. General Nathaniel Green wasn't preoccupied on achieving high-end victories, but his psychological game of chess would see to it that staying proactive meant knowing when retreat was required, to rejoining forces stationed elsewhere near the confines of the broad Catawba, Yadkin, and Dan Rivers. Retreat alone wasn't about defeat. More often than not, that's what we tend to think of when an army is in retreat. We often assume that they have been psychologically uh, destroyed to where they can no longer fight. How ironic that... Um, based upon this book that I've read and that we're discussing, retreat alone wasn't about defeat, but how, but more so how Green's troop, troop forces would become re-energized so that their mission and wearing out Cornwallis and his forces never wavered. General Cornwallis had strategies, but remained rested in his laurels. And another term for laurels is principles. So General Cornwallis had strategies, but yet he remained rested in his laurels to where he laid committed to them 100%. Meaning over time, those strategies lost their relevancy because of leadership inabilities from within his inner circle. Remember I said earlier, folks, about how intelligence uh, was only, um, about intelligence findings, rather, on the British side, the communication system was from top to bottom, and how on the continental side it went from bottom to top. 
Is it fair to say that uh, limiting the communication or the relaying of intelligence information uh, did impact uh, Cornwallis's ability um, to be able to um, to uh, deliver what I call uh, decisive striking blows, most notably in the Carolinas? Uh, perhaps so. So to sum it all up here, this is a story about survival when the odds are stacked against one opposing force whom needed reinventing to escape all-out annihilation come late 1780 versus the other side whom had the numbers and momentum but couldn't fight but could not find the right tactical elements to finish the job and perhaps return America's southern colonies back under British authority. Besides survival, the story also entails what it means to be on the run, constantly, where primary long-term objective meant wearing down an enemy, whose mission lacked full unity, but did not have a true definitive ending point, meaning their race by land and water, a.k.a. rivers, got met with defeat internally. Cornwallis started out strong before Greene's arrival, but once General Greene emerged, the game of chess became significant to, to where retreating meant regrouping, reinventing, and ultimately wearing down an enemy whom placed all things conventional in one basket without ever reinventing warfare from an irregular front. Well, I think we have a lot of exciting stuff to learn in this um, in this uh, book topic discussion. Now, I know I mentioned part of it from early on when we first started. Of course, we know who the author is, Andrew Waters. The first part of the title was To the End of the World. So, is it fair to say that the second part of the title is the following, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Now, I'll tell you this much. Uh, why is the Dan River um, mentioned and not the other rivers? Well, the Dan River uh, flows into um, the Roanoke River, or it's a feeder river, but it's a river that, um, that, uh, that is on the line of uh, Virginia and North Carolina. Could it be that perhaps, maybe, for Nathaniel Green, the race to the Dan meant getting to, um, not only getting to Virginia first before Cornwallis, but perhaps wearing Cornwallis's forces down to where, by the time Cornwallis arrives to Virginia well before the siege of Yorktown, that perhaps Cornwallis doesn't have the numbers that he would need to have to be able to pull off the perfect coup, coup de grace, we have to wonder. So, um, yes, we will be discussing Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Well, I look forward to uh, sharing with you all this uh, book topic discussion. It's going to be well worth the while. And we are going to have a, a better understanding and appreciation for what Rivers alone um, did for the Continental Army during the American Revolutionary War, most notably in the South. But we will also have to um, find out if, in fact, 
the rivers were used for direct uh, transportation. We must keep in mind that Nathaniel Green was was planning left and right. But in order to be a good general, you have to plan left and right. You know, George Washington didn't have luck overnight. George Washington was planning constantly. When he arrived into uh, Massachusetts in June of 1775, or rather, I should say, um, in uh, late June, early July of 1775, I take it back, Washington was greeted by um, a bunch of soldiers, but these weren't the uh, soldiers who had fine attire on. These were soldiers that he dubbed of the uh, lower sort of society. By the time Washington arrived in Massachusetts, he didn't have a whole lot of time to waste. He had to be planning day in and day out. Well, uh, we have covered a lot of ground, and uh, I look forward to sharing with you all um, information on uh, Nathaniel, General Nathaniel Green, uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, and this greater um, movement in South Carolina, not just in South Carolina, but in the Carolinas. Because after all, this alone has a story to tell. And the reason why this story probably had not been told much, because it's going to be more about um, the art of retreating. To some of us, retreating sounds boring. Retreating doesn't sound intriguing. But when we talk about retreating here, we're going to be intrigued by the fact that retreating is a work of art. Because if retreats aren't coordinated properly, then armies become decimated. Not just short-term, but armies can become decimated long-term to where to where one side will emerge victorious by decimating the opposition, but the, the side that got decimated, their cause, being that of independence from the mother country, could go extinguished. So, Thank you for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air again. And thank you uh, for listening. Continue to get the word out to those who would like to join Anchor, whether it's for uh, podcasting purposes or just uh, coming along to listen to what um, my book topic discussions are all about. I welcome them. Thank you. And wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe.